0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Welcome to the announcement Programme for me, Jan Bartlett, on Tuesday, home time. For Welcome to 2000 the announcement Programme for me, Jan Bartlett on Tuesday, home time, for 2023. Today we had the opportunity to hear UN Human Rights lawyer Francesca Albanese speaking with the 2023 Edward Said Memorial Lecture, which was held in Adelaide on November 11th. Introducing her was lawyer and human rights activist Melissa Park and Quid Sadosi, also a prominent human rights lawyer, ended her lecture. I'll also be speaking with Senior Lecturer at RMIT University, Dr. Binoy Kampmark, with his wrap-up of 2023, and Associate Professor Tillman Ruff assessing the release of the radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean from the Fukushima nuclear plant. Back in August. No Kevin Haley today, but he'll be back for the final program next week. So on to the 2023 Edward Said Memorial Lecture. Today we revisit the 2023 Edward Said Memorial Lecture, presented in Adelaide by the Australian Friends of Palestine Association. This year the guest lecturer was Francesca Albanese the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territory, occupied since 1967, a position she was appointed to in 2022. Francesca Albanese is a highly respected human rights lawyer, researcher and author. She has worked for over 20 years as a human rights expert for the United Nations including the Office of the High Commission for Human Rights and the Relief and Work Agency for Palestine Refugees. In these capacities she advised the UN, governments and civil society across the Middle East, North Africa and the Asia-Pacific on the enforcement of human rights norms, especially for vulnerable groups including refugees and migrants. Francesca holds a law degree honours from the University of Pisa and an LLM in Human Rights from the University of London. She is currently completing her PhD in International Refugee Law at Amsterdam University Law Faculty. For this lecture, she was introduced by Melissa Park. Prior to entering politics, Melissa worked as a lawyer for the United Nations Between 1999 and 2007, she worked for the UN in Kosovo, Lebanon, Gaza and New York. She also worked as a law lecturer at Murdoch University, the principal solicitor at the Bunbury Community Legal Centre and in private practice in Sydney and Western Australia. In 2023, she was appointed Executive Director of ICAN International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons.
2: I want to acknowledge the Aboriginal people of Australia as the first Australians. And I acknowledge that we are meeting on the land of the Kaurna people, and we pay our very deep respects to their elders, past and present. We acknowledge their gentle stewardship of this land for tens of thousands of years. Indigenous peoples of the world have always understood the connection between all things. People, animals, and all of nature and that there is a natural balance that must be respected. I'm convinced that most of the problems facing the world today, whether that be climate change, mass extinctions, nuclear weapons, mental health crises, even war, stem from humanity's disconnection, our separation from nature and from each other, from forgetting that we on this planet are all ultimately connected. Our way back, rests in rediscovering that truth. We can learn much from the ancient wisdom and ways of the Aboriginal people, who have demonstrated a willingness to forgive and to share, even as their modest request for justice and truth has been denied in the recent referendum. That sharing by Aboriginal people extends to a kinship with other peoples of the world who have suffered loss of their lands, oppression, discrimination and stigmatization, including the Palestinian people whose suffering at the hands of Zionist colonial extremism is on full display to the world right now. Never has it been more urgent or important that there be truth-telling and justice for Aboriginal Australian people and for Palestinians. One of the strongest global voices for justice and truth on Israel and Palestine belongs to tonight's special guest, Francesca Albanese, Italian international lawyer and academic and UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Occupied Territory since 1967. It is my very great honour to introduce Francesca, and thank you to AFOPA for inviting me to this very special occasion. Francesca and I have at least a couple of things in common. Uh, We do have some dear friends uh, in common. We've also both worked for UNRWA, the UN Refugee Agency, which tragically has had At least 100 staff killed so far in this current crisis. We've both been labelled and hounded as anti-Semites. But as UN Special Rapporteur on Palestine, Francesca has a unique platform to communicate truth to power, and she is doing that every day on behalf of us all. Francesca sees beyond the everyday humiliations and violations of Palestinians' every human right to understand and communicate the bigger picture of the settler colonial nature of the occupation, the asymmetric power structures, and the profound failure and hypocrisy of the West in applying and ignoring international law at its own convenience, for instance, upholding international law in Ukraine, but not in Palestine. This failure and hypocrisy is on full display now in the catastrophic... In her first UN Special Rapporteur report in October last year, Francesca recommended that UN member states develop a plan to end the Israeli settler colonial occupation and apartheid regime. The report concluded The violations described in the present report expose the nature of the Israeli occupation, that of an intentionally acquisitive, segregationist, and repressive regime designed to prevent the realization of the Palestinian people's right to self-determination. During the current crisis in Gaza, Francesca called for an immediate ceasefire, warning that Palestinians are in grave danger of a mass ethnic cleansing. She insisted that the international community must prevent and protect populations from atrocity crimes, and that accountability for international crimes committed by Israeli occupation forces and Hamas must also be immediately pursued. For her accurate and principled work, Francesca has been repeatedly labelled a lifelong anti-Semite, and there have been attempts to have her removed from her position as special rapporteur. 65 scholars of antisemitism, the Holocaust and Jewish studies defended Francesca in December last year, noting it is evident that the campaign against her is not about combating today's antisemitism. It is essentially about efforts to silence her and to undermine her mandate as a senior UN official reporting about Israel's violations of human rights and international law. In January 2023, a statement by 116 human rights and civil society organisations, academic institutions and groups lauded Francesca's tireless efforts towards the protection of human rights in the OPT and in raising awareness of the alarming daily violations of Palestinian rights. In April 2023, Francesca received the International Stefano Chiarini Award in recognition of journalistic work covering Palestine and the Middle East. Amid continuing efforts to have Francesca removed from her post, on 26 April, Amnesty International Italy published a letter of support signed by dozens of Italian rights groups, MPs, jurists, and academics. On 27 April, three former holders of the UN Special Rapporteur on Palestine position publicly urged the UN to defend Francesca and said that she's been the target of attacks that have been slanderous and personal. As Francesca wrote herself earlier this year in defending a UN colleague against attacks by the Israel lobby, shooting the messenger is the only card left to those whose purpose is to shelter Israel from accountability. Unfortunately for them, and for Palestinians, Israel's brutal occupation has grown out of control. It can no longer be whitewashed by smearing human rights voices. Incidentally, the UN colleague Francesca was defending was the head of the UN Human Rights Office in New York, Craig McIber, who just resigned his UN post two weeks ago because of the international community's shameful inaction in the face of genocide in Gaza. Ahead of tonight's lecture, I was in touch with a couple of Francesca's close colleagues to seek their views regarding our guest. Former UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Palestine and a former speaker at this Edward Said Memorial Lecture event, John Dugard, sent this message. Francesca's voice has become the voice of humanity in an inhumane world. A voice for respect for human life, international law and common decency in a world held hostage by the great powers of the West. International Law Professor Artie Imsais said this. Francesca is without a doubt the fiercest and most unapologetic advocate for those on the receiving end of power in occupied Palestine. She combines an insatiable thirst for justice with a deep commitment to using international law as a means to achieve it. Hers is the people's voice, and she will continue to use it until the Palestinian people realise their freedom... Finally, I noted an article about Francesca penned by Israeli historian Professor Avi Shlaim in July this year, in which he wrote, Today, it is Israel in the dock, not the UN special rapporteur. Albanese is an outstandingly competent and conscientious international expert. She deserves nothing but credit for the courage and commitment she has demonstrated in discharging her UN mandate. She can even wear most of the attacks on her from Zionist quarters as a badge of honour. One final irony. The three main pillars of Judaism are truth, justice and peace. Albanese personifies these values to a remarkably high degree and there will be many Jews worldwide disturbed by Israel's betrayal of these core Jewish values especially since the formation of the aggressively anti-Palestinian far-right, xenophobic, homophobic and openly racist coalition government headed by Benjamin Netanyahu, who may have reason to thank her for upholding these values at this most critical moment in Israel's history. Francesca's courageous public intellectualism, her tenacity in the face of intimidation and threats, her insistence on international law being applied to Israel and Palestine – and her profound humanism leaves us in no doubt that, there, that here is a kindred spirit of whom Edward Said would have approved. Said, who died 20 years ago this year, had recognised the actuality that Palestinians and Israeli Jews are now fully implicated in each other's lives and political destinies. And he considered that the only way of rising beyond the endless back-and-forth violence and dehumanism is to admit the universality and integrity of the other's experience and to begin to plan a common life together. In the end, he said, it is finally the humblest and the most basic instrument that will bring peace. And certainly that instrument is not a fighter plane or a rifle butt. This instrument is self-conscious rational struggle conducted in the interests of, of human community. We are seeing this reflected in the massive protests around the world including many Jewish people, in response to the Gaza massacres. And in carrying out her role as UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in Palestine, Francesca Albanese is also conducting that rational struggle in the interests of human community. Would you please all join me in welcoming Francesca to deliver the 2023 Edward Said Memorial Lecture?
3: Good evening, distinguished guests and friends deeply grateful to the Australian Friends of Palestine for inviting me to deliver this important lecture, and also for their outstanding work in organizing such a busy visit for me in Australia. I'm not complaining, I just thank you for your dedication and hospitality, and my gratitude goes to Commissioner Chrissy who has agreed to join us tonight and he's been a source of inspiration and strength to many in the field of human rights and me personally. And I also want to acknowledge one special person, Sara Trojan, who has for the past fifteen months supported my mandate, like me as a volunteer. Makes me laugh when people say, Oh, you're paid by Qatar. No, I do that for free. And I want to acknowledge her incredible dedication and professionalism. I also want to thank Melissa. Melissa, you really touched me with your words and I wanted to cry and I realized I have no tears left after this month, which is critical. I mean, it it's gives us a sense of, of where we are because I've been like Melissa, and like Chris and many in this room, someone who's engaged with Palestine for many, many years. And I'm someone who's engaged with the question of Palestine through the plight of the Palestinian refugees who are the human face of the Palestinian tragedy. And I know how forced displacement is a quintessential feature of Palestinians' life since the Nakba uh, in 1947-49, uh, in 1967, including in a number of, of Arab countries who have not been particularly hospitable to the Palestinians. And still, with all those I know, I could have never fathomed to see what is happening today. We are really somewhere different from anything and much worse of anything we have seen till now. But before starting, I also wish to join who preceded me and pay tribute to the Ghana people who are the tra- traditional custodians of this land. And I'm honored to have the chance to pay my respect to, to the elders, both present and, and past, and extend that respect to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands who um, may be present here today. As I acknowledge that indigenous people in this country as elsewhere across the world have never ceded sovereignty, my heart goes to Palestine, where settler colonialism has not won over the native people yet, and they are fighting an existential fight not to be displaced from or fatally subjugated in the little that remains of their historical homeland. It is an immense honor to be here to reflect on the enduring legacy of Edward Said and doing so in my capacity as a UN Special Rapporteur. This mandate entails monitoring and reporting to the United Nations um, on the violations of international law committed by Israel in the Palestinian territory that it occupies, that it has occupied for 56 years, which means that I cannot look at the violations that Israel has committed before. For this, we have Commissioner Chris Sidoti. For those of you who don't know, in 2021, the United Nations created a permanent commission of inquiry who has a mandate to document violations of international law, including criminal law, and and collect evidence, not only in the occupied Palestinian territory, but also in Israel. It doesn't have a mandate that is so confined to the occupied territory, and it's not time-bound. So it can also look at the root causes, which is part of the Commission of Inquiry's mandate. And uh, Christi is a member of this commission, on which I'm great it exists, finally. All right. As I was said before, this mandate is, uh, is honorary, though very demanding, and I'm really proud to serve as the eighth and first woman in the 30-year history of this function. I consider myself personally and professionally profoundly indebted to Edward Said, a luminary and a visionary thinker uh, of unparalleled intellect who has left a profound imprint on generations of Palestinians and beyond. I was prepared to discuss his legacy through my living experience as a UN official, as a scholar and as a human being but the tragic hours we are living, and the ground zero of humanity that we have been thrown into since October 7, have forced me to adjust what I had planned to deliver tonight. Profoundly convinced that Edward Said's legacy, his message of truth-telling, and shared humanity. It's interesting that these are the two things that you captured. We hadn't coordinated. But these two things can and must be of guidance for us in these dark times. This is why I wish to start by tackling what is unfolding under our watch. Since the beginning of my term as a Special Rapporteur and the years that preceded it, the reality in the occupied Palestinian territory has evolved as a troubling one which could explode any moment. And yet, as I said, never I would have imagined to speak to you in the face of such a tragic moment when thousands of innocents have been killed in the occupied Palestinian territory and in Israel. And I have extended my deepest condolences to all civilians affected by the ongoing conflict and to the many across the world who are suffering with them. And I particularly directed this message to the Palestinian and Jewish communities in Australia. Since the events of the 7th of October, about 1,200 Israelis and foreign nationals were killed in Israel, with 1,000 more injured following attacks by Hamas from the occupied Gaza Strip. These are war crimes and must be accounted for. In reaction, Israel has embarked on an unrelenting bombardment of Gaza, which had already been under 16 years of unlawful blockade, which constitutes collective punishment and a war crime. And during these 16 years, there had already been five wars against Gaza in 2008, 2012, 2014, 2021, 2022, making, killing for over 4,000 people, of whom 1,000 children. Just to put things in context, for those who think that The disaster started on October 7. As the bombing, the relentless bombing of Gaza enters its 35th day, and it has already killed 11,000 people, 4,500 of whom are children, it has injured over 27,000 people, displaced 1.5 million. Now... These figures are crazy, I mean, are crazily high, but imagine this happening in a small piece of land of 360 square kilometers, and they are trapped. There is nowhere they can hide, and they've been told to go from north to south, while the south was being bombed. Among those killed, there are journalists, medical personnel, and humanitarian officers. And with 192 UN staff killed, this has been the most lethal conflict in the history of the organization. Again, I still struggle to call it a conflict because it's something very different. But around them, 50% of the housing units have been totally or partially destroyed. Hospitals, schools, mosques, churches, cultural centers, and universities have been bombed with entire neighbourhood leveled to the ground. Israel has even tightened the 16-year-old blockade, preventing the entry into Gaza of life-sustaining supplies like food, water, and fuel, and medicines. Humanitarian aid in this war has become a tool of war, exposing the population to inescapable risks of death where crimes, crimes against humanity, must be accounted for, but also they must be prevented. And this is why, together with other special rapporteurs, I've warned from the very first hours and days of this war against the risk that Israel might commit a crime of genocide against the Palestinian people. As genocide is the intentional targeting of a population based on racial, national, ethnic, or religious lines, with intent to destroy it in full or in part. Certainly, the statements made by Israeli politicians and military unveil a genocidal intent to wipe out Gaza and its residents cannot be ignored, although it is ignored, but also because as of the 7th of October, outside of the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, where Hamas has no authority, Israeli soldiers and armed settlers have been terrorized, defenseless Palestinian communities, killing in four weeks 168 Palestinians, including 46 children, injuring over 2,500 Palestinians forcibly displacing 15 herding communities and depopulating 11 villages in South Hebron Hills and Jordan Valley. So in the past days the Israeli occupation forces have also carried out heavily armed incursions by ground and air into densely populated refugee camps. Flyers threatening the Palestinians to leave their land towards Jordan have been distributed across the West Bank. As I read this, I said, how come the international community doesn't see what Israel is doing? This is, again, under the fog of war, as it has happened in 1947-49, and in 1967, Israel is trying to push all the Palestinians, or as many Palestinians as possible, out of their ancestral homeland. And today is using very violent means of warfare, but also something that didn't exist, probably, at the time of the Nakba in 47-49, or the Naksa in 1967, which is uh, the weaponization of antisemitism that doesn't allow anyone to speak out and to and to decry the crimes that Israel is committing and seek justice. And in the face of all this, the international community is completely paralyzed with the UN experiencing its most epic political and humanitarian failure since its creation. Individual member states, especially in the West are also in the margins, muttering words of condemnation uh, inaudible, or words of condemnation for Israel's excesses at best, or staying silent of, or out of fear of restraining Israel's self-proclaimed <laughs> right to defend itself whatever it means and whatever it implies. And here is where we are. Staring into the abyss, while the Palestinians really face the most significant existential threat in their entire life as a people. As the wholesale destruction of Gaza will force many to leave, even when the hostilities cease. And the unrestrained ferocity of settlers will sooner or later push vulnerable Palestinians to leave. And if in 75 years the international community had not realized yet what the word Nakba means, here it is, televised under our watch. The current reality epitomizes how the international community has failed to promote peace and security for both the Palestinians and Israelis, premised upon international law which entails the end of Israel's 56-year-old occupation and the, realization, the full realization of Palestinian self-determination and, and freedom. And in these dark hours, I see the enduring legacy of Edward Said as a light that can guide us toward the end of this historical injustice protracted for too long. Throughout his life, Edward Said modeled the traits of a powerful witness, truthful and independent in exposing the most difficult truth even to the most restrained audiences, even in the toughest circumstances. And as you can see in Gaza, where international journalists cannot enter and few international presence remains, the Palestinians are themselves the truth-tellers of their history and their unfolding tragedy. And still, they have to fight to even be seen and acknowledged in their humanity and their suffering Their dehumanization starts at the hand of Israel and Israeli authorities, but it reverberates and gets amplified in the West. One famous assertion of Edward Said can guide us to understand an endemic problem in Western society, a legacy of colonialism and a trade of imperialism. It is imposition of history a narration that is written for the colonized and the oppressed while present and past are reordered in a narrative that is convenient to imperial powers, which today is embodied by the global north, which continues to ally with and protect Israel from accountability. Quote, what's more truly frightening, Said used to say, is the defacement, the mutilation, and ultimately, the eradication of history in order to create one that is favorable, end of quote. The original quotes say to the US, and I say to Israel, not much difference, and to all those who support it. The sanitized and imposed narrative is called by scholar Enrique Galvan Alvarez, epistemic violence, violence exerted against or through knowledge in the way facts are narrated or omitted. Domination, says Galvan Alvarez, can be accomplished through the construction of epistemic frameworks that legitimize and enshrine those practices of domination, not just through political oppression and economic exploitation. And in the case of Palestine, epistemic violence manifests in the way knowledge about the Palestinian people's past and presence is past, forgotten or forfeited. And, And this is the unlawful and unbearable reality that Israel continues to impose on them and the West condones. The outcome of this has been the gradual erosion of space for civil society working in and on Israel and Palestine. And I don't know how bad the situation is in Australia, but in Europe, it's really scary because there has been such a weaponization of antisemitism, epitomized by the IHRA definition of antisemitism, which conflates criticism of Israel with antisemitism. Now, while antisemitism exists and is really applied, particularly of Western societies, in fact, the weaponization of this concept and the conflation of antisemitism with criticism to the state of Israel has created a chilling effect on free speech and civic activism in defense of Palestinian rights, eroding the protection stemming from any democracy and freedom of expression or freedom of assembly, and weakening the fight against anti Semitism worldwide. It is hard to be a truth teller within this pervasive obscurantism around Palestine and where any denunciation of Israel as an apartheid state, which is what it is, gets censored, criminalized, and punished. In Palestine, Israel and Israel's supporters have spun narratives that portray the Palestinians as an existential threat to the Jewish people and the Palestinian struggle for rights as a direct challenge to Israel's very existence. And, unconscionably, this is also harming the Jews around the world who find themselves, as it happens this very day, is often targeted because they are associated to the actions and the policies of Israel as Jews. Correcting this requires a rehumanization of the discourse itself. And this is in the interest of both Palestinians and Israelis, Israeli Jews. But how to do that, I ask myself. And to correct this narrative, the first attempt I embarked on as I took on the role of UN Special Rapporteur has been exposing the fundamental asymmetry of power, resources, and intent between Israelis and Palestinians and the unequal and iniquitous relationship between the two, which remains one between occupier and occupied, colonizer and colonized. Explaining the substance of the right to self-determination of the Palestinian people has been at the forefront of my effort This right, despite its centrality, remains largely misunderstood or simply forgotten in the constantly recited mantra of the two-state solutions, which is an empty box if you take the right of self-determination out of it. So the international community sees the situation in the occupied Palestinian territory as a constant humanitarian crisis to manage, rather than the consequence of a protracted injustice, the needs a political solution in line with international law.
1: You are listening to the 2023 said Memorial Lecture, live in Adelaide on the 11th of November, with UN human rights lawyer Francesca Albanese.
3: Many seem to believe that the conflict again, for me the word is really misplaced, but let's call it conflict for convenience, can only be resolved via negotiation between the parties. This neglects both the power imbalance between the parties and Israel's legal obligation as an occupying power. And they also want to believe and make us believe that economic development without respecting Palestinian rights can deliver freedom. And this is still better than nothing. Oblivious to root causes international obligations and obsessed with curing the symptoms, these approaches have all contributed to normalizing the occupation instead of challenging its settler colonial nature. Any political negotiation must be premised on the realization of the right of self-determination of the Palestinian people. But what is this right? Because it sounds so theoretical. And frankly, for those who have it, it is theoretical. But it's very concrete to those who do not enjoy it. The right of self-determination, in very simple terms, is the right to live and grow as a people within a political community of its own. This implies the right to oppose alien domination, subjugation, and exploitation that might be the fulfillment of this right. This is anchored in international law. A 56-year-long occupation is incompatible with the right of self-determination. A government of subjugated people that lacks full jurisdiction over its own residents, the Palestinian Authority, territory and resources, cannot function independently. And since 1967, this is what I argue in my first report that Melissa mentioned, Israel has prevented the realization of the right of self-determination for the Palestinian people in its four constitutive elements. First of all, territorial sovereignty, which Israel violates, by seizing, annexing, and fragmenting the Palestinian territory in banter stands of shattered landscapes and lives and transferring its own civilian population into it, creating colonies. This reality is profoundly illegal and amounts in and of itself to war crimes. Second, sovereignty over natural resources, which are necessary to develop an independent Palestinian economy, which Israel violates, by extracting and exploiting Palestinian resources in order to generate profits benefiting third parties, including the the settlers. For those of you who have not had uh, an experience of traveling across the West Bank, for example, Israel controls everything, land, water, whatever resource is underground, and the Palestinians need to pay for that. The Palestinians need to pay an Israeli company for the water that the Israeli company extracts on behalf of Israel as the occupying power. Think that the products that come from the settlements are the outcome of a commission of a war crime. Now, I don't know if Australia has uh, Uh, settlement products arriving here. Probably you are spared because you are too far, but Europe doesn't. Europe, Europe is a very important commercial partner of Israel. And it makes me laugh because they say, I mean, they're really debating about whether to label or not to label, and when they decided to label settlement products, they were so proud of themselves. But hey, no, the outcome of a war crime shouldn't enter European markets, full stop. Yeah, I'm not a politician, so I can afford this honesty, this honesty. By doing so, European countries are complicit with the war crime that Israel commits. I see the lawyers nodding, that's a good sign. And third, cultural existence of and as a people, which Israel violates by appropriating, erasing, and suppressing symbols of Palestinian identity, including banning the Palestinian flag, Kofia, Palestinian school curricula by imposing a sanitized version of it, which eliminates Palestinian history but also by apprehending, seizing, and converting Palestinian sites, cultural and religious sites, into Israeli cultural venues. I can tell you there are many more Palestinian flags here than as many you can find in the occupied Palestinian territory for cultural events, because this, is, this, in, this would be prohibited in the occupied Palestinian territory. Last but not least, the formation and expression of the Palestinian polity which is the beating heart of self-determination, which Israel violates by interfering with the formation of political will and repressing political activities, which is epitomized, I often say, as I read, by the draconian persecution of reputable Palestinian human rights organizations which are labeled terrorists, but also Hamas. Because now everyone is crying out, Hamas, terrorist organization, yes, but Hamas wouldn't be what it is today meaning a liability to the Palestinian people first and foremost hadn't it been for Israel. And there is full literature on that. This is not something I've researched myself, but it's there. It's in the records. And even Israeli politicians say that because Hamas has been used to break the unity of the Palestinian people within the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Just again, to put things in context because we live in, a, in an era where everything gets dehistoricized and decontextualized. And this is this is wrong. This has been accompanied, this violation of the right of self-determination has been accompanied by a logic of displace the Palestinian natives to replace them with others, often foreign citizens. Now, when I I speak to an Italian or other audience, I mean, another audience, they wouldn't understand. I'm sure that Australians understand well what it is to displace the original natives to replace them with others. (laughs) This is the hallmark of settler colonialism of which the prolonged illegal occupation is the vehicle, and apartheid is an avoidable consequence. It is clear that the military occupation that Israel initiated in 1967 in what remained of British mandate Palestine stands in star contrast to the core principles of justice and legality, which underpin the United Nations' pursuit of uh, international pre- peace and prosperity. And illustrious scholars argue that no different from what Russia is doing to Ukraine, this amounts to the crime of aggression. The West's inability to apply international law to the question of Palestine, of which it bears fundamental responsibility, betrays its commitment to a just peace, whilst maintaining an illusion of its brokering role. This is certainly the situation that has crystallized through the three decades of the untenable peace process under the auspices of the Oslo Accords, and of which this incredibly violent year which risks to grow even more violent in the weeks and months to come, bears testament to. Now, presented as a way to liberate the Palestinians, the Oslo Accords have acted as a Trojan horse to plunder and control Palestinian society in what I recently described, this is my second report, self-promotion, I recently described as a social, sociopolitically engineered carceral continuum since 1967, over one million Palestinians, including children as young as 12, have been arrested and detained under authoritarian rules written, enacted, enforced, and adjudicated by the Israeli military. This is why I say, I mean, when I, when I hear, no, Israel is the only democracy for the Middle, of the Middle East. Yes, for the Jews. But because for the Palestinians, especially those living in the occupied Palestinian territory, Israel is nothing different than a military dictatorship. It is what it is. So Palestinians are often arrested and subjected to long detention for the simplest acts of life and exercise of fundamental human rights, like expressing opinions, gathering, pronouncing political speeches unauthorized by the... Israeli army or even merely attempting to do so and ultimately they are deprived of their status as protected civilians under international humanitarian law. They are often presumed guilty without evidence, arrested without warrants and detained without charge or trial and brutalized in Israeli custody. Mass incarceration, premised on the treatment of Palestinians as a collective security threat, has been used as a tool to subjugate an entire population depriving them of self-determination and enforcing racial domination to advance territorial acquisition by force. While in prison confinement is the most acute form of deprivation of liberty imposed on the Palestinians under occupation, I argue that Palestinians are detained both behind bars and beyond bars. Through physical confinement, I mean, again, for those of you who have not traveled to Palestine, there is really the aesthetics of a jail, because each Palestinian village is encircled by settlements, by colonies, or military bases, and then there are walled communities and uh, and checkpoints, checkpoints everywhere, fixed checkpoints, flying checkpoints, and segregated roads. For the small West Bank, 400 kilometers of roads that the Palestinians cannot access, and so they are confined into tiny pieces of land, they can't even travel with their own car from north to south uninterrupted. And then there is the bureaucratic control. The hundreds of permits on top of the 2,500 military orders that I mentioned, there are hundreds of permits that the Palestinians have to apply for to build a house, to go to build a school or any other any other uh, civilian infrastructure they need to travel abroad, to get married, even to have a relationship with someone from abroad, you need a permit from the Israeli authorities. And it's so easy to deny that 2,000 are just pushing a button, security threat. And this is something that, breaking the silence, Israeli soldiers who have decided to renegade their fast somewhat, tell you in such a clarity, and they say, we do that because we need to make sure they feel our presence and to terrorize and to make sure, quote, that they keep their heads down. This is the purpose of the Israeli occupation in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem. And of course, on top of it, there is another layer of this carceral architecture, which is surveillance, because it's everywhere, and it's enforced through technology, through spying, and through collaborators. Most children who go through the Israeli detention system are forced, coerced, to become informants. And this is something that, it's like a plague, stains them and destroys them forever. And this is why I call the Occupied Palestinian Territory a modern-day panopticon. Panopticon is a prison that was invented, I mean, it was conceived in the 17th century in the UK by Jerry Bentham. And it's a prison surveilled from outside and from inside. And this is very typical of settler colonial regimes that have entrapped the natives, already dispossessed uh, of their lands, into highly controlled and restricted reserves in order to ensure more and more land grabbing. Carcerality is yet another way of eliminating the natives to settle in their land. And it's therefore necessary to insist that the question of Palestinian self-determination is a fundamental precondition and not the ultimate goal of any peace and any negotiation. The Palestinians cannot negotiate the condition of their liberation from their jailer. And yet again, I resort to Edward Said, to guide us through this process. As he said, humanism is the only, and I would go so far as saying the final resistance we have against the inhumane practices and injustices that disfigure human history. In an attempt to contribute to humanizing the discourse, I devoted my last report to children. Speaking to those of them over summer, I could almost touch the vivid trauma that these young souls endure. And it's visible in their bodies, in their speech, in their movement. And those of you who have children understand that it's not normal that a 12-year-old recites the UDHR declaration telling you, I do not have the right to go to school. This is what international treaties, and they quote the, the articles of the treaties. And you are not, there is nothing to celebrate about that. Because this is not normal that children as young as 12 become, become the advocate for their own freedom. And you can see the stress because then when you ask them what you are scared of, to die, they tell you, I'm scared to die. I'm scared to die myself for them my mother, my siblings get killed by soldiers or settlers. Over and above the sterility of numbers that I already gave you, I keep on reminding everyone, half of the population under occupation, Palestinian population under occupation is made of children. So when you hear terrorists, half of them has not even turned 18. 40% of them is not even 15. And no one has been victimized by Israel's settler colonial rule more, more than Palestinian children. So, while Israeli children are not spared either, because all children in the occupied Palestinian territory are rendered vulnerable, and the Israeli children in the colonies pay the price of being part of an illegal system because of the choices of their parents and the state who supports them, but it is the Palestinian children who are the most disproportionately impacted, tormented beyond what their tender age could bear. And as Professors Niv Gordon and Nicola Perugini elucidate, Israel justifies its use of force against Palestinians, including children, by presenting the entire population as a collective and inherently terrorist threat. This destroys children, turning their life into what uh, Professor Nader Shahub Kevorkian aptly calls unchilding. It takes away the lightness of childhood and robs children of their future and yet children are children and today's children are tomorrow's adults this is something that Israel should have thought of before reducing gaza to rubble as it's doing the necessity of reclaiming a more humane narrative is categorically imperative both to protect them and to protect the society they will soon be part of Many of them Moldova. oh, if the only the world knew in reference to virtuous individuals seated in the liberal capitals of the empire. As I pledge to them, I will endeavor to convey their players with honesty and effectiveness, and this is what I, I keep on doing. And you are much more sympathetic than the audiences I had at the General Assembly and... and the UN in general. For many of of these children, Israel's settler colonial occupation manifests in a myriad of daily tragedies and traumatic experiences. It is the struggle of their parents who after their protracted legal battles to reclaim confiscated land, must watch it cultivated by settlers. It is the imposing eight-meter wall which separates families and communities and curtails the livelihood and jobs. It is a father's heartbreak as he demolishes his unfinished home, denied building permits, perpetually at risk of destruction by the military, with the only legacy of it, a mortgage to pay. Its empty classrooms, once filled with eager students, now resting in cemeteries. It's a brother hailed as a martyr in the refugee camp, but labeled as terrorist by the Israeli military who later comes to demolish the family home. This is the occupation for an average Palestinian child. And this is what I heard so and, uh, and heard from afar, because I probably don't know, but I'm not allowed to go to the occupied Palestinian territory, credit to Israel. But still, this is what I will try to recount as an impartial witness amidst the legal interpretation of promising norms. And as I conclude, in today's political landscape marked by historical amnesia and outright political myopia, I offer this reminder. The story of Palestine illustrates how international practice can perpetuate injustice forever. And moving forward, the paramount focus should be honoring international obligations not on determining what peace should look like when parties achieve it. Ending the occupation and colonization is the imperative mandated by international law simply to allow the other to live in freedom, safety, and dignity. And this is what justice means in its simplest form. So what does it mean today and tomorrow? Today, it means an immediate ceasefire. A ceasefire is needed now. How many lives need to... (laughs) To be lost, more, there are already 11,000, which are many more than those who have been killed, the civilians who have been killed in 19 months of Russia-Ukraine war. Many more of those who have, killed, who have been killed in Myanmar in two years of perpetration of genocide by the Myanmar military junta. 3,000 more of those who have been slaughtered in Srebrenica. This is the reality we face today, and ceasefire is essential now together with humanitarian corridors that do not become a vehicle to forcible transfer the Palestinians toward Egypt, because the Egyptian solution has been evoked many times before the 7th of October, and it's becoming reality if, these, if the international community doesn't come to census. Of course, the hostages should be liberated together with the thousand Palestinians arbitrarily detained by Israel, and of course, happy to discuss next uh, next week with the other australian policymakers i will have the chance to meet an arms embargo to prevent commission of further atrocities is needed australia can be comp- is complicit with so well done in the long run it is necessary and this is something i really need you to remind your political leadership they need to stop reciting the mantra of negotiation to end the conflict. The occupation must cease, and so the settler colonial presence in the occupied territory. I'm not calling to the uprooting of anyone, because this is something that even the Palestinians wouldn't ask. They don't hope for that. I mean, it's just living in peace, equality, and dignity. Palestinians and Jewish Israelis. But as we get there, There is a need not to recognise as legal, not to aid, not to facilitate the commission of illegal acts of war crimes, which, frankly, the international community, including Australia, does. It's time to resort to countermeasures afforded by the UN Charter, sanctions as part of the economic measures, uh, withdrawal of embassies as part of the diplomatic measures and other political measures that I'm sure you are creative enough to think and propose yourselves to Australian authorities. And of course, accountability. It, there is a need to have justice for the victims, that the perpetrators are brought to justice, both at the ICC, there is someone, someone woke up, so we have some, some hope, um, I mean, an international criminal court prosecutor went to Rafah recently and announced that he will spearhead the investigation. But also, states, national courts can, those who have the jurisdiction to uh, to try to, um, to prosecute war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and aggression, suitable courts to try alleged perpetrators. So, I also hope that others will join this call for justice and embrace what I call a paradigm shift. I see the possibility of producing a butterfly effect, overcoming our fragility as individuals together. We have the power to create a profound transformation in the name of our shared humanity, as uh, Edward Said would say. And this, in this rehumanization discourse, hopefully not to betray Edward Said's message, I convincingly Include the Israelis. Because, like the Palestinians, they are part of an anachronistic settler colonial endeavor, of course, with unparalleled responsibilities, agencies, and suffering. But ending Jewish Israeli domination and supremacy will be a rehumanizing act for them as well. Because no one can oppress and brutalize others, like Israelis do with the Palestinians, without experiencing a loss of humanity themselves. And in closing this lecture, I cannot quite say goodbye to Edward Said because, in the words of Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, he remains so present among us and alive in the world, ambassador of consciousness and humanity to the world. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to the 2003 Edward Said Memorial Lecture presented in Adelaide by human rights lawyer Francesca Albanese on the 11th of November this year. And finally, Chris Sedoti, an Australian expert on international human rights law, a lawyer and advocate. He's a former human rights commissioner and a former commissioner of the Australian Law Reform Commission and has held a range of other distinguished posts.
0: Francesca's presentations are always a tour de force. I always feel swept away in the breadth of knowledge and understanding she brings to any presentation on the subject of Palestine and Israel. Francesca's strength in making these presentations comes from four factors. The first is her expertise. She studied it. She knows it. The second is her experience. She's lived it she's seen it. The third is her analysis which is always incisive and goes to the heart of the issues that are being considered. And the fourth is the result of those three and that is insight. Uh, I'm always amazed at the insight that she brings to explaining the situation, how it got to where it is, what will happen unless things change this is the the truth telling of edward Said, and it's truth telling that francesca does so well so often she referred to the inadequacy of international responses and and i would like to touch on that just for a minute when we talk about or when we hear talk of this situation being resolved by negotiations between the parties the commentators miss an essential fact that the situation has not just been caused by the parties. There was the, the long colonial period, the Ottomans, the British, the French, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, not just the Balfour Declaration, the dirty dealing that was done to both Jewish communities and Arab communities during the First World War. Most of all, there was the fact that the international system itself was deeply involved in the construction of the circumstances that have led to the present situation. And that is decisions taken by the United Nations General Assembly in 1947. So when the international system has been so deeply involved in the creation of this problem, it's simply not possible to walk away from it and say that it's only up to the parties to resolve it. And this is at the heart of what Francesca was getting at, it seems to me, in saying that leaving it to the parties is not the answer. Nor is leaving it to negotiation between the parties the answer in legal terms. Francesca is a lawyer and she speaks in legal terms. She's a very good Italian international lawyer. I'm a naive Australian lawyer. I mean, I, I actually continue to think that international law has something to offer in dealing with the situation in Israel and Palestine and a means to presenting a way forward. There's currently a referral to the International Court of Justice to provide an advisory opinion on the lawfulness or otherwise of the occupation and a number of states including Australia opposed asking the International Court of Justice that question because they said it should be left to negotiation between the parties. Does this mean that the negotiation between the parties can lead to a negotiated settlement that is contrary to international law? Is that what they're saying? Is it not the case that a good opinion, an advisory opinion from the most authoritative court in the international system can provide the basis for negotiations? I'm naive. I think international law has a lot to offer. It has a lot to offer in relation to judging what has happened since the 7th of October and what is continuing to happen. That's the accountability that Francesca referred to. And it has a lot to offer in indicating the dimensions of a way forward. Francesca spoke a lot about the way forward. One of the things that, the insights I was referring to is how she says these are the steps that need to be taken. It's um, a bit strange to hear steps coming from lawyers You know, that that should be the role of, of political leaders. But we're in this situation because of the profound failure of political leadership. Israeli political leadership, Palestinian political leadership, international political leadership. I mean, just to take the example of the current situation, I cannot begin to imagine how traumatic it must be for the Jewish community to have heard witnessed what happened on the 7th of October. And I can't begin to imagine how traumatic it has been for Palestinian people to have experienced what has happened since the 7th of October. I I can imagine it well enough to know that the level of trauma produces irrational emotional responses that are harmful to people. But the role of leaders is to lead beyond the irrational emotional response to justice, to law, to peace, and we're not seeing it. What we're seeing instead from political leaders is loose language, woolly thinking, and detrimental decisions, harmful ways forward where our leaders are failing. That's the strength of what she presented today and the strength of what she does. She made a comment about the butterfly effect. Francesca's the butterfly.
1: And you've been listening to a slightly edited recording of the 2023 Edward Saeed Memorial Lecture. Lawyers, Melissa Park, Francesca Albanese and Chris Because
4: The Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom.
1: Everybody should be standing here today Saying free Palestine.
5: Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Boumbanga nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty.
1: We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians.
2: 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.
4: What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year
3: siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them.
2: This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved.
4: Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance.
2: Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The
4: oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75
3: years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active.
4: APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. It's going to be a hot summer. Yay for summer! Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. So find a shady spot, grab your picnic blanket, and gather your mates to get your order in. We're selling delicious wine, generously provided by a Victorian wine producer, just in time for your summer gathering. This is a new provider to us, and we know you'll love the wine. Wines can be purchased in a single bottle, a gift pack of three, or get a discount and order in a half dozen or one dozen lots. For an extra $10, we can deliver to anyone within a 15k radius of the station. It's easy to support 3CR this summer. Order online at 3cr.org.au slash shop or call the station on 03 9419 8377 during business hours.
0: In the summer I went swimming, in the summer I might have drowned. But I held my breath, I kicked my feet and I move my arms around. I moved my arms around.
1: Next day, wrap up for 2023 with Dr Binoy Campmark, Senior Lecturer at RMIT University, School of Global, Urban and Social Studies, Doctor of Philosophy.
6: Well, I suppose uh, one of the things that's uh, looming large and uh, close to home is uh, the, the various aspects of the AUKUS arrangement and the increased in a militarization, if you like, of Australia at the behest of Washington. I think that's certainly something that's really worth looking at. And then, of course, you can reflect on the, uh, even though it was late in the year, but the, of course, the uh, catastrophe in, in Gaza, ongoing things such as the Ukraine-Russian conflict and the ongoing issues there. So I suppose that that's the sort of thing we can aim for.
1: Yeah. Let's start with AUKUS. Will the submarines come or won't they?
6: Ah, yes. Uh, well, the issue of the submarines, yes, those, those phantom creatures. Uh, <laughs> and when they do appear, they're probably going to end up becoming white elephants as well. Submarine acquisition is always problematic, whatever the Navy, wherever in the world is located. And so the Australian one is no exception. So by the time these uh, nuclear propulsion submarines are going to actually be um, available for the Australian Navy will have, the, there'll be questions, of course, as to whether they're even feasible, what are they really there for? I think anyone who's been following the issue will be aware that essentially these submarines have nothing to do with Australian security, but everything to do with uh, enlisting Australia as a surrogate to protect American interests in the Indo-Pacific. So, you know, there is also, um, we have to also remember there are domestic problems in the U.S. about providing some of these uh, boats, the Virginia class, for example. There have been members of Congress who are skeptical that Australia should even get these particular boats um, uh, in the first place, given the fact that the U.S. Navy itself is behind the production line of such vessels. So I think that's been very much ignored and very much underplayed in the Australian discussion about this. And I think it's something that we should keep an eye on. And that was very evident this year for all, you know, AUKUS has trumpeted as this great thing uh, for US-Australian relations and so on. But in actual fact, it's raising considerable domestic problems. So that's the issue of the, uh, the, the submarines themselves. And then, of course, let's not forget the old problem about who has control over them in actual fact. So I just find it very hard to believe uh, the premise that the U.S. Navy is not going to have a significant role controlling these vessels, notwithstanding that they're going to be in Australian hands as well. So, um, and that's that's that side of it, the other side of it in, in terms of the so-called AUKUS a vessel of a nuclear-powered submarine that'll be based on a, a UK design using US technology. We've seen how problematic uh, submarine construction is at the best of times. We've seen Australia's own nightmarish history with the Collins class. Um, so I think there'll be huge problems there in terms of the construction phase of the Australian, the so-called AUKUS submarine itself. So you've got two components. You've got the uh, whether the U.S. will even actually part with their vessels, three to five of them, uh, and whether the construction of the AUKUS uh, submarine itself will will ever take place and will it ever be successful. So that's that side of it. And that's just the start of so many other problems. What are we going to do with the nuclear waste, for example? Australia has no dedicated storage facility for high-intensity waste, high-level nuclear waste. It barely has one form intermediate waste. Every time an effort has been made to set up a facility or pick a site, there's been very active community resistance, and we saw that, uh, you know, in the context of uh, the Nimpandi action that was successful in the federal court that was mounted by the First Nations peoples there very successfully, uh, which meant that the Albanese government has scrapped. Identifying a site in South Australia at least for the moment, although it might be at some point South Australia will definitely be revisited, so you know all these issues the the issue of the submarines, the issue of the nuclear waste uh, the issue that Australia simply doesn't have all this personnel, uh, the militarization of universities and assistance or in aiding of that too all of this presents uh, the sad Uh, demise of Australian sovereignty, the demise, you know, essentially independence, but also the dangers, uh, you know, in terms of dealing with the context of accelerating hostilities in the region and so on.
1: And of course, the submarines are only one part of AUKUS.
6: Yes, that's right. It's called the so-called first pillar. The first pillar is about the transfer of nuclear technology uh, and the acquisition by the Australian Navy of, of a submarine capacity of this sort. But uh, the, uh, the second part also talks about the sharing of technologies, uh, the, uh, for example, the beefing up of AI capabilities, uh, cyber capabilities, space capabilities. But if you read the context of how this is being done, it's also very much you know, it's very clear that the ascendant power here, the dominant primary one, is the United States. So, for example, hardly any discussion in Australian media uh, about the uh, space, uh, the radar facility at Exmouth, which Australian sources are very uh, mum about the uh, air construction of that site, but the United States sources are not. They're quite open about the fact that the radar facility uh, at Exmouth is going to be used essentially for American space protection against uh, threats by, be they China, be they Russia, whoever it might be. Um, so that's another example of how, you know, AUKUS um, is working and how it's being done there. And let's not forget, and even and this is something that's really quite striking, this this comes from uh, US critics themselves who are saying that the, the way the export laws are now being redrafted, Um, they overwhelmingly favor U.S. control over IP and expertise and so on. I mean, the, the notion that the Albanese government is talking of an independent or sovereign capability in technology when it comes to sharing with the U.S. and to a lesser extent the U.K. is a nonsense, because what it will mean is that the U.S. is entitled to essentially control all the IP and all the Technological discoveries, innovation, and so on that takes place in the relationship, thereby excluding other partners, even allies. So it's quite remarkable. So, this, uh, you know, the number of headaches that this thing is drawing up and the threatening nature of it is, uh, you know, you, you, it's very hard to uh, diminish the significance of it.
1: And the cost that's the issue, isn't it? For many, many people, that all other aspects of society are sort of going downhill, yet there's Billions of dollars for supporting the U.S. war machine.
6: Yes, it's uh, it's an astonishing thing, and and the figures vary. Of course, one of the figures that's thrown about is uh, 368 billion Australian into this, but uh, it's very unlikely to stay there. It's going to be, a, no doubt, a lot larger, maybe even you know, uh, staggeringly up to half a trillion. And when you consider precisely the, the fact that all of this has been taking place in the context of the cost-of-living crisis, that all of this absurd drive to um, fund the military-industrial complex you know, to the tune of dozens of retired admirals and vice-admirals and advisors from the U.S. coming into Australia on a regular basis, of which, by the way, you know it's almost very impossible to get figures. I know Senator Jackie Lambie has been trying to... Uh, get figures about uh, the nature of these trips that are being done to give advice. And likewise, Australian officials going over to the United States. And all of this just adds to the bill. Yes, at the expense of uh, other budgetary things, it was extraordinary that the Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, came with these statements that it would be budget neutral in the long run, which is absolute nonsense. The fact is that it's an enormous strain on the economy, an enormous strain on it. But it's being spun, of course, is that this is seen as a benefit, that it'll be good for education, it'll be good for technology, it'll be good for Australian industry. And that's the sad and the sinister nature of this, uh, giving it some benign twist and spin, that militarizing the country in favor of this uh, ridiculous, you know, military operation essentially against China is a sensible thing to do. So yes, the cost, the astronomical cost, the and the long-term threat that it poses generally is just unremarkable.
1: And as the year draws to an end, the absolute catastrophe, I don't know what other words you can use for the people of Gaza and increasingly the West Bank and East Jerusalem.
6: Yes, what we're seeing essentially is uh, an operation that, has made the nonsense not that we didn't know it was a nonsense before but has made a nonsense of any pretense of a two-state solution or the idea that Israel would ever tolerate uh, a a Palestine um, that has any sovereign credibility at all you know the operation and the way it's treating um, you know the way it's conducting operations is, is based on the premise of extermination annihilation neutering whatever you want to call it and it's based on the premise that the palestinians are politically non-people that's the thing and they're non-persons and not treated as such in any sense as uh, viable human beings and it's extraordinary the that statements are still made to the extent that there are you know animals and animals are to be treated accordingly as animals and this kind of regular Rhetoric that's coming out from the IDF spokespeople's mouths and so on—it is—it is astonishing. And yes, the um, uh, the shielding of uh, Israeli policy is guaranteed in the UN, as we saw very um, just a few days ago, when the UN Security Council a resolution calling for humanitarian ceasefire was rejected again. The motion had been put forth. It started initially because of. Uh, Uh, an unusual use of the UN Secretary General's power under Article 99 of the UN Charter, which permits the Secretary General to press the UN uh, to hear matters of urgency that might be a threat to international peace and security. And this is what uh, Antonio Guterres did. And the United Arab Emirates then put forth a resolution, which uh, on paper seemed perfectly understandable. It it emphasized the humanitarian dimension. But uh, the sole vote so uh, opponent to this, and that's all it takes uh, with the permanent five, of course, in the UN Security Council came from the United States. I think the uh, delegate there, uh, Delegate Robert uh, Wood, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's his name, and it was saying, citing the usual grounds that the resolution did not mention that Hamas started all of this, uh, that, that Israel has the ab- absolute right to self-defense uh, and, and so on. So. It is a shocking state of affairs. And of course, uh, as we're speaking, the Biden administration is trying to bypass congressional scrutiny over the supply of uh, 45,000 shells for the Israeli Merkava tanks that are being used against the Gaza populace. So it is, it is a very, it, it's a very, grotesque spectacle, and you know? there's no, no other way of calling it.
1: And that's the problem, isn't it? It's a spectacle that everyone is seeing and, and feels helpless. To stop
6: it. Yes, it, it is remarkable that uh, it, it to see it live, as it were, that it's unfolding and and uh, it's uh, continuing, and then this this horror of it being played out in real time, and the fact that you know each day the, the casualty list is is horrific, and you know the the next blood curdling message is sent out, you know, be it from Netanyahu, or be it from whichever Israeli. Uh, administrator or official it might be. So it is absolutely shocking to see that. And then, you know, they, you know, I think Saeed that uh, spoke, you know, the great Edward Saeed, was, um, who was a great activist also for for the Palestinian cause, did say that, you know, when you, when you are the victim of a victim, so because Israel always operates from the perspective of a victim ideology, when it punishes others and victimizes them, then you have a very, you know, perverse set of operational logic here, and this is what we're seeing, which is quite horrendous.
1: Where's it going to end, Benoy?
6: It's a very good question, Jan. I'm afraid that in this particular case here, at this point, the pressure, pressure is mounting on Israel to define its objectives more clearly and coherently. I mean, it's very clear to us, I would suggest, that the objective, as I said, is essentially to totally... Delegitimize and hobble um, any Palestinian prospect for statehood, and you can, as you pointed out, too. There's, it's getting more aggressive as well in the West Bank, and let's not forget that essentially uh, the settlers there are operating set, uh, almost like a uh, like a vigilante militia, keeping an eye in some cases, openly um, attacking Palestinians and killing them and injuring them. Uh, and, of course, Palestinians being placed essentially under armed guard. I mean, there's no other way of putting it, strict curfews. So uh, I know uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, did say that this notion of destroying Hamas is a a fantasy, essentially, because it will mean that uh, Israel ends up engaging in in a 10-year war with this. But, of course, in a sense, Israel has been engaged in a war that's not 75 years, but 75 years. And when we think about it, the whole notion of uh, the removal of the Palestinians you know, in the, the so-called Nakba is something that we see today in all its all goriness. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately, eventually, is, we can only hope that some heads prevail in Israel and then people start to talk again. But at this point, there's no talking happening.
1: Yeah. There's another conflict going on, and that's been going on for a couple of years now, and that's in the north, and that's Ukraine.
6: Yes, it's it's an interesting thing that uh, at this particular point in time, the the wags and the the wiseacres and all the characters and the pundits were suggesting that it would have concluded by now and that that all of it would be resolved. You know, Ukraine, for example, would be victorious in its counteroffensive. Uh, Russia would be uh, you know suing for peace. All these predictions. Well, as it turns out, nothing of the sort has happened. It is a horrendously a horrendously costly war to both sides but it's uh, very clear that russia is in for the long term for the long haul and it is also clear that those backing ukraine their shall we say their interest in doing so um, is finite um, as we in fact see the biggest backer for ukraine the united states start freezing funding uh, in its uh, budget um, outlays for ukrainian assistance because there are an increasing number of individuals, especially amongst the Republicans in the in Congress, who are wondering whether this is really the sort of objectives they want. I and mean, should they, you know, pour in resources you know, for this kind of conflict? Is it's really the sort of thing to do? So again, we have a an ongoing conflict there of immense cost and of course immense danger as well, because the you know the question is how much wider will it be? I think at this point, the threat of it, it expanding has been reined in somewhat. I think both Ukraine and Russia have sort of, you know, put in points of demarcation and, and Ukraine has realized that they're simply not going to, you know, be admitted to NATO anytime too soon because doing that, of course, will result in uh, bringing NATO involved in a direct, as in direct conflict. Essentially NATO is in an indirect proxy conflict with Russia now, but involving NATO in formal arrangements will result in a global conflict. So, You know, the sad tragedy of this is the blood layer that's continuing, and I see it continuing a lot longer, fortunately.
1: Finally, Binoy, the quest for a voice, the result and the consequences.
6: Well, Australia's, uh, again, as it has been for many years, trying to contend with where um, the relationship of... Its First Nations people is to be reconciled with those of the be, be they the be settlers and the conquerors or the invaders, and this is uh, a question that's uh, never ending. Uh, sadly, it's one of those that has been uh, put somewhat backwards, shall we say, with the referendum vote. You know, but I, I think that rather than perhaps being negative about it, it's also appropriate to then see, you know, well, first of all the salient lessons about anything that's ever put to a referendum because referenda in Australia at the best of times are very difficult to win. And to have started off on a footing where there was always going to be disagreement um, is a very risky proposition. So I think that the solutions will have to be more local. They'll have to probably be more based uh, on local levels and bottom-up rather than having some kind of measure... That's deemed um, you know imposed from the top, and I think this is something that sadly yes will have to be revisited, but I dare say there's going to be probably something of a hiatus before that's actually considered
1: and what do you believe the new year will bring
6: I hope that the new year will will bring some kind of respite in these uh, the horrendous conflicts and you know and that that there is a you know, degree of sanity that prevails and that um, the the peacemakers you know, start making an appearance rather than the war makers. There's been a lot of war talk, you know, as they, I think, um, various people have come up with uh, the origins of the quote, uh, be it Churchill, or Harold Wilson or Macmillan. And, but the idea of uh, George Orr being better than war, war, I think is a good thing. And I just do hope that in the new year... Um, you know, in 2024, we see a bit more of uh, the George, or a bit more conversation, discussion, and diplomacy. I'm, I'm hopeful, but uh, of course, the signs are not looking too good as they are at the moment.
1: And better year for universities. You're hoping for that one too.
6: Yes, I do, but I've lost hope on that one. <laughs> I think, I think the, the judging, well, I, I've read uh, read the uh, shall we say the tea leaves very well over the years, and it just it, the the message is a bit grim because of the way. It's the way universities are structured, unfortunately, especially in Australia. Um, When you have 38 Australian universities and the the average salary of a VC is over 1 million Australian dollars, and that's not including necessarily the full package. If you take the full package, it's anywhere up to Mm -hmm. 1.5 million or more. When you have that and you have struggling students struggling at university and you have uh, toiling staff with uh, very in some cases, very poor work conditions, then there's a huge issue to be had. And I don't think, even though the government's making some review about it, I just don't see that taking place in any substantive way until the university system itself is dramatically reformed.
1: Are we the same as other Western countries, or have we gone out on our own?
6: I think the Australian context is... um, you know, in the context of some of the writing i 've been doing on this i 've certainly been receiving a lot of correspondence from people who are, um, are working in say for example you know the the u s university system, which is a bit more diverse it 's just very different in the sense that there are many tiers and many many types and options um, Yes, it, it also doesn't, in some cases, it's not as equitable as the Australian one, but it does have options too. Uh, but I've gotten the same messages that uh, the corporatized university is an absolute nightmare, and that's really the problem. It's, it's, you know, when you start treating education as an economic model, you know, that, that's knowledge as a profit-based thing rather than an actual important thing of learning, then I think there are huge problems. And this is what I see manifest at the university system.
1: Well, I thank you for your contribution throughout the year, Binoy, and hopefully we can talk again 2024.
6: Yes, Jan, I really look forward to that. It's been an absolute pleasure, a pleasure to speak to you and and, uh, hopefully a pleasure for the listeners to have also heard our our conversations and and your season's greetings and look forward to chatting to you in the new year.
1: And indeed, we will hear more from Dr Binoy Campmark on Tuesday home time next year.
7: Knocking the Top Off, A People's History of Alcohol in Australia is a heavily illustrated 67-chapter book co-edited by Alex Ettling and Ian McIntyre, delivering an incisive alternative history of Australia from the bottom up. It includes stories ranging from the convict era resistance through to actions by workers, people with disability and anti-fascists today. Alcohol and pubs' many and varied roles in social change, music, Art and more are explored by more than 20 writers. These include Jeff Sparrow, Wendy Bacon, Gary Foley, Diane Kirkby, David Nichols, Tanya Luckins and Graham Willett. Copies can be purchased directly from 3CR at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours. To find out more details or buy the book online, visit interventions.org.au. A 3CR supporter.
1: The 11th Annual Setting Sun International Film Festival is calling for entries for its 2024 festival. Enter your short film or feature and help celebrate the occasion. There are loads of great prices, including $1,000 for Best Film. For your chance to be in the running and see your film screened at the gorgeous Sun Theatre or at Kindred Studios, both in Yarraville, head to settingsun.com.au. Entries close on the 31st of January 2024. Setting Sun is a 3CR supporter.
5: Many refugees who still don't have the right to work are feeling the impacts of the cost of living crisis, leaving them unable to put food on the table for their families, let alone afford rent, health care, and other essentials. Give to ASRC's end-of-year appeal and help shine a light of hope for refugees and people seeking asylum this festive season. Donate today at asrc.org.au
2: forward donate A3CR supporter.
1: Back in August, Japan began releasing nuclear-contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean amidst waves of protests within Japan and governments in neighbouring countries, including China, and particularly China. The first release was in excess of one million tonnes of water to follow through an underwater tunnel into the ocean. In recent weeks, the plant operator, Toyota Electric Power Company, Holdings, completed the third release. I spoke with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff to find out what many people are concerned about with the release. And first, Tillman, how much of this contaminated water has been stored? And even if the company continues to release the contaminated water, will it continue to fill up the tanks that are being emptied? Now only 10 of the thousand that are full with contaminated water.
5: Well, that's right. The problem with the water is not just the large volume of it, and the fact that it contains all sorts of radioactive materials, because this melted fuel is just, you know, a disorganised mess down the bottom of of the reactor. So it's quite unlike the normal sort of cooling water that um, normally functioning nuclear power plants do. Unfortunately, also discharge into. Into the air and into groundwater and into the sea if they're near the coast, but because the reactors need this constant cooling and because rainwater and groundwater collect in the through the damaged buildings and the fractured basements that needs to be pumped out, essentially as long as those reactors require active cooling by water and are not isolated completely from the environment then Radioactively contaminated water is going to continue to accumulate. The plan that TEPCO and the Japanese government have is for the eventual decommissioning of the facilities, uh, the four damaged reactors and all of the facilities and structures around them. But that timeline and plan looks really fraught, increasingly difficult, and many experts are saying probably impossible. Nothing about that plan is going to uh, to time or or even you know following the procedures that were laid out because it's still pretty unclear exactly where the fuel is in uh, in most of the reactors they've um, they've been able to have a bit of a look in unit one and it clearly is very structurally damaged and very disorganized, and most of it's melted down the bottom of the containment so it's, and it's extremely radioactive even For many years, the robots that were sent in to try and get remote vision of of the structures malfunctioned within minutes or an hour because it was so intensely radioactive that even metal components, you know, fail very quickly. You would get a lethal dose of radiation anywhere close to that, you know, in minutes or... So it's it's an extremely difficult environment to work in. So the long-range sort of decommissioning plan which is the whole justification for the water discharge into the ocean, that they need the space is what they're saying, that plan looks increasingly unlikely to ever happen. It's it's really uncertain that that's even possible um, because it's such a radioactive, highly radioactive congealed mess. What they may end up having to do is some sort of confinement structure uh, such as has been put around the number four reactor at Chernobyl that blew up where there's essentially you know a big... Case around the whole thing. Um, so that may eventually re- be required. And for Kushima, that would need to go down underground as well to stop leakage. Um, but that, you know, they've already put in an ice wall and various uh, other walls and sub drains down there. So that that's feasible. So many of us think that eventually, when active cooling by water circulation is no longer required then you know the best thing and probably the only feasible thing is going to be to sort of contain these in sort of giant mausoleums rather than actually pull all that mess of molten fuel out. But certainly as long as active water cooling is required, which at this stage is for the indefinite future and likely decades, radioactive water, wastewater will continue to accumulate on site. So this, this discharge is not just of what's accumulated since the accident in March 2011 now 13 years of it, but it's it's also continually being added to every day. And although the amount has reduced, like originally it was accumulating about 500-plus cubic metres a day, the, the various um, walls and, and drainage procedures that they've put in have reduced that to on average about 90 cubic metres a day, is what TEPCO reports. It's hard to verify those figures. When there's heavy rain, as there often is in Japan, uh, that goes up because some of it comes from rainwater leaking in. But it's still going to be of you know, the order of 100 to 150 cubic metres a day that's going to continue to accumulate indefinitely.
1: If it's such a radioactive mess, how can they say it's been cleaned up?
5: Well, it's a pretty sophisticated system that they've got that filters and then by a whole range of chemical steps you know, precipitates out and filters out various metals. the the many radioactive substances so certainly um it's possible to remove a fair bit of it the trouble is that the system certainly doesn't work perfectly you know and and the continuing lack of sort of transparency and and really trustworthy behavior i mean tepco and the government still haven't got it but they've really lost trust uh, of the public and uh, around the world about this and that um their inter- everybody's interests are best served by a really open, transparent process. They don't seem to have to have gotten that. So it was only in, in 2018 that, that actually a, a news investigation revealed that, in fact, the water that had been cleaned, uh, gone through the system, 72% of it still had various radioactive substances above regulatory limits. And in some cases, the level was extremely high. So some of the levels of radioactive materials were 19,000 times higher than the regulatory limit, so really vastly higher. So TEPCO's answer, which they never really showed, worked, but their answer was, well, we'll just run it through the, the cleaning system as often as we need to until it's clean enough, which they never actually demonstrated that they were capable of or any sense of how often that might be. So normal radioactive cooling normal cooling water from reactors does contain tritium this radioactive form of hydrogen which gets incorporated into water and has a half-life of about 12 years you know that's one problem it's still radioactive water but it doesn't have all these you know tens of different nasty cesium strontium plutonium other other stuff in it so what they can't remove by this filtration system is is the tritium, and also carbon-14, which is an important, biologically an important isotope because, of course, most of the molecules that we're made of and most living things are made of have a lot of carbon in them. Um, So radioactive carbon, apart from sticking around for a long time, it's got a half-life of nearly 6,000 years. So that means every 6,000 years, the amount that's present decays by half. Um, So it's around for a really long time and it gets incorporated in and recycled by living systems. And same for tritium. And tritium is not just in the water where it would be less of a problem because it's, you know, it gets very widely diluted in the ocean. But tritium can also become organically bound. So hydrogen is also included in the number of proteins and the DNA and the various molecules that, that make us up. There's a lot of carbon, but there's also a lot of oxygen and hydrogen and other things. So that hydrogen that gets organically bound, you know that means that it, once it's in a protein or a, or a DNA or something, then it can stick around for much longer, you know right inside cells. It's not just um, sloshing around in, the, in, in your body in the sort of general pool of water that's in there, we're about eighty percent water. It's actually getting incorporated in, so it lasts for much longer, and um, its radiation is more of an issue. And it also recycles and concentrates up the food chain a bit more. So, tritium is not one thing. It depends what what form it's in. But you know, all of these things are radioactive and and they're all harmful. You know, every bit of extra radiation is not is not good for you. Because tritium only lasts for for 12 years, its half life. I mean, half after 12 years it's decayed by half. After another 12 years you've got a quarter of what you started with, and another 12 years you've got an eighth. So if you if you stored the and this has been one of the alternatives proposed that unfortunately hasn't been taken seriously or investigated, um, if you just store it, if you just stored this contaminated water for say 50, 60 years, over 95% of the tritium would have decayed away. It's almost a non-issue by then. Not every, you know the other things that some of the other things take much longer to decay, but some important things like tritium could be dramatically reduced and much less of a problem just simply by by storing it for, for a bit longer. So there are certainly alternatives that haven't been adequately explored. And, and, you know, one suspects very strongly that part of the problem here is a sort of political one, that this material, if it were managed on an ongoing basis in Japan, legislatively, it is radioactive waste and that imposes certain obligations. But you know, if you discharge it into the ocean, uh, then it's sort of out, not only is it out of sight, out of mind, but it's out of Japan's jurisdiction. Comes everybody's problem.
1: I did hear commentators say back in August when the first release was planned that many nuclear plants worldwide routinely discharge water into the ocean and this is no different. Not true?
5: Yeah, a lot of commentators have been Talking about this as if as if it was this was the same as the cooling water that's used by you know a power plant when it's normally operating, a- and that's not the case. They basically should contain that cooling water should just contain tritium and, and no other radioactive materials, because this is you know the the result of an emergency meltdowns, explosions, you know disrupted fuel. The water is coming in contact uh, with fuel that's not neatly contained anymore. It's 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 smashed up. So it accumulates many, many, many different radioactive substances. Whatever's in that spent fuel that can dissolve in water will get into the into the cooling water. So there's all these other nasties in it,
2: which is a bigger
5: problem. And the other thing about it is because this is an uncontrolled situation, it's not tidy, it's not neat, it's not regulated. Um, the concentration of what's in the cooling water will change over time. Probably in the first couple of years after the disaster, a lot of what came out was not just cooling water but full of debris and sludge and solid material as well, which I think uh, reading between the lines has clogged up and caused problems with the purification system that they use. So it's not one thing, and that sludge is likely to contain even more radioactive nasties than the water. It's not a neat, tidy, you know, just water with that's a bit warm with tritium in it. It's it's got a whole bunch of other stuff and solid debris and bits of all sorts of rubbish and oil and other chemicals uh, in it as well as radioactive materials. But every nuclear power plant does need cooling. But that water is a separate circuit. You know, it should not be in contact with the with the molten fuel, and it should only the only radioactive thing it should have in it is tritium. But yes, nuclear power plants normally operating. Routinely discharge very large amounts of tritium through their cooling water, and if they're inland, that's either discharged through steam into the atmosphere, or it gets, you know, discharged into to ponds and eventually into finds its way into rivers and lakes and groundwater, um, or if they're near the coast and they, then it then it will end up um, running off into the ocean. But this, the, even just from a tritium point of view, uh, the amount of tritium in this that's in the tanks at present is many hundreds of years worth of normal production. You know, even by that standard, it, this is a very, a very large amount.
1: Are TEPCO managing this mess by themselves, or do they have our international experts working with them?
5: The responsibility for management of different aspects of the uh, the site and the disaster aftermath is not tidily apportioned um, or clear and simple. In fact, that's been one of the problems with the management of the disaster all along because the lines of responsibility were not completely clear between the regulators, the government and and the operator, TEPCO. In relation to the water, the government has sort of bought in fairly strongly and directly into this and it is the one that has essentially directed that the Contaminated wastewater should be discharged into the ocean, and Tepco is kind of just following through. On most of the other aspects of of sort of decommissioning and site management, it's Tepco's responsibility. But on this, it's uh, the government has has really stepped in, and I suspect that may harken back to the uh, the period in 2013 when Japan was bidding for the for the what then became the Tokyo Olympics, and and Prime Minister Abe at the time made a famous um, statement about you know this disaster has never caused any problems for, for Tokyo, and I'll make sure it won't and, and it never will. Uh, and I think that resulted following up from that, I think misinformation that he, that he gave, the government was was at pains to manage the water issue themselves. It's a bit messy. Government and TEPCO have, have rather different responsibilities, but for this water discharge, it's clearly the government's taken, taken that over in terms of the decision-making, but, um, but TEPCO has to do it.
1: Let's look at the consequences for the local people, for the local fisher folk, to the economy of Japan, and also what happens over the oceans.
5: From the water discharge point of view, the main concern is, I mean, people have some concerns about you know using the ocean for swimming and recreation and all sorts of other things that you use it for there's also you know a substantial fishing industry along that part of the Japanese coast and they have been decimated by the disaster essentially I mean they were initially decimated by the the tsunami and quite a few people lost their lives or they didn't lose their lives they lost their boats they were hit very hard and then for a period they weren't for some years, they were not able to fish at all, and then only with um, careful monitoring and and uh, they've you know they're still occasionally catching highly radioactive fish, but most of them are within uh, acceptable limits, although a number of jurisdictions and countries um, have refused to accept seafood sometimes from the whole of japan sometimes from from the fukushima coast so that industry has has really struggled recover I understand is now at around sort of half the, the production that they had before the disaster and this is also a sort of fraught uh, area because they have been absolutely adamant both the local fisheries associations and the national body that, that they're a part of have been absolutely consistent and clear that they do not support and bitterly oppose uh, radioactive wastewater discharge. Some of them you know, concerned about the actual physical and biological effects, of, and some more concerned about the reputational issues. But either way, or, or both, um, very concerned about that this essentially would be a death knell for their for their industry. So they opposed it, have consistently opposed it very strongly, and the government did make a commitment some years ago that they, in 2013, it was after again after that Abe speech about the Olympics that the government committed to local fishing people that they would not implement any disposal without the understanding of interested parties. It's slightly vaguely worded, I mean, understanding. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean their approval or their agreement. It's a bit more of a weaselly term. But it clearly indicates that, you know, their views were to be taken into account and they weren't just to be ignored. Well, they certainly... The local fishing associations certainly feel like they've they've been ignored. Um, so they're pretty upset about this, and they'll be the ones who are most directly affected. Um, the largest market for Japan's seafood is China, and after the first uh, lot of water was discharged, we've now just had the third discharge. So they go on for a couple of weeks, and they've been discharging about 8,000 uh, tonnes at a time. After the first discharge, China extended its its ban on Japanese seafood from just seafood from Fukushima region to all Japanese seafoods. So this is now not just an issue for the Fukushima region, but in fact for all of Japan. And in fact, the Japanese government has already had to put up, stump up a couple of billion dollars equivalent, you know, to support the seafood industry nationwide because of the impacts of of this fraught decision to continue with the, the wastewater discharge. So... They're the people who are most directly impacted, particularly in Fukushima, but also across uh, across the whole of Japan, where, where seafood is obviously a, a major source of both traditional nutrition and of you know, income.
1: As you have said, it's 13 years since the accident. Is monitoring still occurring? I'm thinking about the local people, the fish that they're eating, and the general ocean, what's happening there?
5: There certainly is, is monitoring of foodstuffs in Japan, and certainly seafoods are among those monitored, and there's some official monitoring, but there's also an awful lot of of citizen monitoring, and local groups, local groups of farmers, local groups of producers and sellers doing their own monitoring because they've lost trust in in government and and you know they want to be safe themselves for what they're consuming themselves apart from what they're selling. So, there's actually quite a lot of food monitoring. I've, I've been surprised and impressed at how well, you know, you, if you go to a supermarket in, in the Fukushima region, Guinea's to Gooseberries, they'll have a, a well set up, you know, radiation monitoring room where they, they check all the food out the back and often, you know, we'll, we'll re- label the food accordingly. So, that's fairly widespread. There's still the odd, very highly radioactive uh, fish caught off the coast mostly the bottom feeders have have the highest levels which reflects the fact that radioactive materials accumulate disproportionately in the sediments so it's the bottom feeding fish that are particularly uh, affected but also some you know fruits and vegetables are still occasionally above the levels uh, that are permitted and particularly wild foods that are tr- you know important for traditional harvesting and you know so it mainly tends to be older people that that eat them, but particularly mushrooms, which very effectively concentrate cesium, and, uh, and wild animals, particularly boars, wild pigs, that I guess eat a lot of mushrooms and dig up a lot of roots. They tend to be the most highly radioactive on a continuing basis, and will probably be so for, for decades since. Um, in terms of people, there's actually very poor ongoing monitoring of, of either health or of radioactive exposures or of people's health uh, in terms of related to the, to the disaster and the exposures they might be receiving, really poor. And I think it it's really a case of the government essentially doesn't want to know, is trying to play down the significance of the disaster, is trying to pretend that things are back to normal. So has withdrawn support for people who were forced to relocate is providing all sorts of push and pull uh, incentives, so cutting out subsidies, so there's no more subsidies for people evacuated uh, who came from areas where the government says it's fine to return to. And they're also applying still this very high, I think completely unacceptably high and unprecedentedly high level of radiation that they're saying is okay. So normally in almost all of the world and before the disaster in Japan, the recommended maximum level of extra non medical radiation that any member of the public should get from any nuclear-related activities is set at one millisievert. It's about half or a third of the normal sort of background level of radiation that most of us are exposed to. And Japan, after the disaster, essentially to make the management simpler, reduce the cost and the, the necessity for evacuations, really arbitrarily increased that to 20 millisieverts per year. And they've then now now set 20 millisieverts per year as also the standard for opening up areas again that people were evacuated from, saying it's now safe to go back to. And they're even encouraging some return to areas where the likely dose of radiation that people will get will be up to 50 millisieverts per year. And there's still this multi-agency of government myth um, and misinformation that is promulgated that less than 100 millisieverts of radiation there's no firm uncontroversial evidence that levels of radiation less than 100 millisieverts are harmful it's really extraordinary to me that the japanese government is is so neglecting public health and safety that they there is as yet no plan even a a timeline for reducing that level back to to where it where it was at one millisievert. If that's your standard, then people are being subject to much higher exposures than than really would be accepted anywhere else in the world. I think it's it's really quite an extraordinary aspect of this um, of the continuing mismanagement of this disaster and what the independent investigation commission into the disaster, you know, called the neglect of the health and safety, which unfortunately continues.
1: You mentioned earlier that the contaminated water is released in a tunnel deep into the ocean. Does that mean that it travels less around the ocean or just the
5: same? No, once it's released into the ocean, it will travel with the currents. um, You know, it's completely up to the winds and the currents and the organisms that, that move things around the ocean. Within a couple of years of the Fukushima disaster tuna were caught off the coast of California that, that contained isotopes that were proven to be from Fukushima. And that's you know, partly because tuna swim long distances but also because the, the water circulates around the Pacific. So once it's discharged into the ocean, the pipe that discharges the, the water is about a kilometre long. So it doesn't discharge very far off the coast. And that material will then just spread um, obviously in highest concentration in that local area, but then will spread eventually very widely with the ocean currents. I think it's not too late to stop this. You know, this is planned to go on for many years, at least 30. It's just started. By March of next year, they're planning to have discharged about 32,000 tonnes of contaminated water. That's still only 10 tanks worth, and there are well over 1,000 <laughs> contaminated tanks full of contaminated water on site. So relatively, it's still a pretty small amount that will have been discharged. It's not too late for Japan to to really prove that it can manage this better than they have in the past. Um, By stopping this and doing a a proper independent assessment of the alternatives, which they really haven't adequately uh, considered, of longer-term storage, of cleaning the water and then using it in structural applications like concrete that we've discussed before, where the radioactivity would uh, would be contained and much less uh, available for you know to be taken up by in the environment and by, by food things that people, animals and plants that people eat. And it's still not too late. And I think it's important that uh, concerns continue to be raised. And I think it's also a really bad precedent. Uh, for Japan to have set, it very clearly contravenes the commitments that Japan has made under various legal instruments, particularly the London uh, Dumping Convention and the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which very specifically prohibits a dumping of radioactive waste materials, which this clearly is uh, at sea. So I'm hoping that, that a country or two might take Japan to Uh, the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea or the International Court of Justice to really challenge the veracity of of this uh, practice because I think it's a a very unfortunate um, precedent. And, you know, there are some serious people saying this. Professor Tachijiro Suzuki, who was the vice chairman of the Japan Atomic Energy Commission, you know, is saying this was a bad decision and should stop. Japan could really use this as an example to show that they, that they have learnt the lessons and be much more accountable and transparent and have a really good evidence-based process, explore the alternatives and not this sort of politically driven, out-of-sight, out-of-mind, uh, you know, 19th century, dilution is the solution to pollution kind of approach, which is, I think is really, is really problematic.
1: I've been speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, Tillman is an infectious diseases and public health physician. He's the co president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of War and co founder of ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.